0: But I want to start off by asking you the question, who is the most significant person in the history of of international medicine or medical missions or international public health? Who do you think of as being uh, an exemplary role model? Now, how you would respond to that would probably depend on how much life experience you have. Um, Albert Schweitzer was the big name in the 50s and 60s. Schweitzer was a famous musician and philosopher who went to medical school and spent the next 50 years living in Gabon. You all know where Gabon is located, don't you? So when you look at the map of Africa, Africa looks like this. So we got the desert, and we got Kenya, and Gabon is, is literally the armpit of, of the continent. Uh, from obscurity in Gabon, he continued to write uh, for journalists, and the world uh, became known for his work. Uh, Tom Dooley, some of you know, maybe your parents know Tom Dooley. He was the doctor from just an ordinary doc from St. Louis who was in charge of running the refugee camp between North and South Vietnam uh, just before the outbreak of the war. Um, his book, Deliver Us from Evil, uh, launched thousands of people into similar careers. Uh, Paul Farmer, more recently from Harvard, uh, started ID or HIV clinics in um, in Rwanda and Haiti, his book Mountains Beyond Mountains. But have you ever considered our friend David Livingston? Now, we think of David Livingston as the great explorer, you know, the first white man to cross the southern continent of Africa, the first white man to see Victoria Falls. His life was actually a lot more interesting than that. He was born in total poverty. He started working factories when he was 10 years old, and his father taught him to read at night. And he essentially studied himself, self-studied himself into the University of Glasgow, where he joined a mission society and was assigned to South Africa. He spent 10 years in what is today South Africa, being a normal missionary doctor. You know, he was starting churches and he was sharing the gospel of Jesus and he was taking care of sick people. And he said that was the most delightful time in his entire life. And it was only after that that he launched into the exploration of the Nile and the southern continent of Africa. Um, Livingston had a a different style of uh, exploration. It was usually only him and some African guys. They didn't carry guns. They didn't carry weapons. There was only a dozen of them or so. And so they were greeted everywhere they went rather than traveling with small armies like the other explorers of that day. And so Livingston had wonderful opportunities to share the gospel as he was traveling across across Africa like this. Uh, He's credited with the downfall of slavery in the British Empire. We always think of William Wilberforce. But actually, what what Livingston was doing was authenticating the value of Africans as true human beings, which was a radical concept uh, during that era. He went on to... Great fame, as you know, but he writes about his life and he says, I will place no value on anything I have or may possess except in relationship to the kingdom of Christ. He had his priorities straight. Well, as he wrote and cared for Africans, he wrote about the main things that were killing him. It was pneumonia and it was dysentery and malaria and birth complications. He himself died of malaria and dysentery in Zambia. And he would be appalled to know that today, 150 years later, in the age of the cell phone, people are still dying of those very same diseases in uh, nations of poverty. Now, when I say nations of poverty, I'm, I'm using the World Bank definition of countries where people earn less than $1,000 a year, you know, less than 2 or $3 a day. And they're essentially the, the nations in red on this display. Poverty is improving in some places. If you look at, this is a comparison of 1980 to 2000 with 80 in the gray and 2000 in the red. In in the middle there is Asia. Poverty in Asia has shrunk to less than half of what it was 20 years ago. Whereas poverty in Africa, second from the bottom, is twice as much as it was during that interval Poverty is not, of course, confined to poor nations. There are pockets of poverty throughout the world in the richest nations. Um, I spent a a, a year in in Shanghai, and, of course, we think of Shanghai as as skyscrapers, and yet there are many, many laborers who are living in conditions that are are no better than, uh, than places in Africa or the Middle East. Um, But I want to be talking a little bit about statistics here, and so I I need to review some fascinating facts from the world of medicine. Uh, We have to talk about statistics. For example, why is it that women live longer than men? You know, there are certain behaviors that men engage in that they think is is bold, but in actuality puts their lives at risk. You know, why is it, guys, that we do? Do you see women doing stuff like this? Yeah, he stuck his head through a chair. You know, no, women, women are smarter than that. I mean, really, how about some, some twine or, or some rope? Um, this is my favorite. He's got the electricity spread across his swimming pool. Um, no women, no? Okay, and finally, yes. Um, all right. So, statistics. When you look at the causes of death in the world's poorest countries, uh, the top ten... Are, are here, and, and in red are the very ones that David Livingston wrote about now, pneumonia, obstetrical complications, tuberculosis, malaria. If you compare what kills people in the poorest nations with the wealthiest nations, it's entirely different. Uh, on the left hand column is the poorest nations, half of them are infectious diseases, entirely preventable. And in the right hand side, in wealthy nations, the only infectious disease listed at all is, is pneumonia which is usually associated with uh, advanced age. Uh, If you look at at indicators of health around the world, life expectancy in the wealthiest nations hovers around 60 to 70, while life expectancy in Africa is is 50, 30-year gap. And then in the very poorest nations, life expectancy barely reaches above 40. Most of you would have been dead a long time ago. Well, there's a tight connection between health status and economic status. And just to give that to you visually, here in red I have the nations of poverty. Now watch closely. These are the nations of HIV prevalence. These are the nations in dark of tuberculosis prevalence. These are the nations in dark of malaria prevalence. These are the nations in dark of malnutrition. Do you see a pattern here? Very tight Correlation. Now, we never see malnutrition listed as a cause of death. Do people die of malnutrition? Not per se. They usually die of an infection, which was predisposed by, by their malnutrition. And so malnutrition doesn't get listed as a cause of death. But we know that over half of people who die of um, an infectious disease, especially children, have malnutrition as a significant underlying risk factor uh, for that death. Malnutrition will kill a child like this if they, if they get even a, a small bout of diarrhea, whereas a, a healthy, immunocompetent child is going to be able to survive one of those. So health status, economic status. The, uh, the clearest way to show that is, uh, is this example from, from India. Our body is our life. If we are unable to work, we are unable to generate income, and we starve to death or our children starve to death. Uh, A small illness can put an entire family into a state of poverty very quickly. Uh, Just in the case of poverty and infectious diseases, people who live in impoverished conditions usually have inadequate housing, hence they're susceptible to insect vectors. They usually have insufficient water, hence they are susceptible to waterborne diseases. They're usually in crowded living conditions, so what do they transmit to one another? respiratory contagions. They usually have limited access to any sort of medical care because they can't pay for it. And in spite of the good intentions of many countries, medical care is almost always something that that people have to actually pay for in the end result. Okay, so here's a question for you. Conventional methods of quantifying death indicate about 70% of childhood deaths in low resource nations are due to which of the following? What is it that's killing most children? Is it malnutrition, A, infectious diseases, B, vaccine-preventable diseases, C, respiratory diseases, D, or injuries? What is it that's killing most children? Got your answer? It's infectious diseases. 70% of all childhood deaths in poor nations are due to infectious diseases. And that includes pneumonia, dysentery, malaria, and vaccine-preventable diseases as the, as the main causes. Poor health leads to poverty. You know, the fascinating study done in India where they, where they found people with iron deficiency anemia and they measured how much money they make. And then they treated their iron deficiency anemia. They, they gave them deworming medication and they gave them uh, iron and, and then they found that the that same population of people was now able to get jobs. And I'd be able to become employed and improve their entire economic status as we improve their health. Actually, improving health makes for better economies. Uh, People are able to go to work. People are able to buy products. People are able to engage in commerce. Uh, And it works the other way around. As economic growth improves, so does physical health through ways of of better housing, better nutrition, better ability to pay for medical care, better access to health services, Uh, improved industrial safety. You you can look at what happened in the United States over the last century and tell a lot about the rest of the world. In in the U.S. at the turn of the last century, life expectancy was about 50, 45 to 50. Uh, If you were black, your life expectancy was only in the 30s as well. Well, then what happened was in the 1920s, there was this huge jump in life expectancy in the United States and is primarily due to improvements in housing which, which blocked the transmission of tuberculosis and influenza and improvements in safe drinking water, hence the diminution of uh, waterborne diseases. Health improved dramatically and in, that, in similar as we see today in many impo- impoverished countries that are developing economically They're getting a handle on their water and their housing situation, and hence they are combating those diseases as a result of their own economic growth. Um, This is life expectancy of various countries. Uh, The United States is the very top in purple. We've run from um, 78 years to 80 years life expectancy just since 1950. We've jumped 10 years. If you look at, at China in the dark green in the very middle, China's life expectancy has jumped from about 50 to 65 or 70 over the last six years. And then at the very bottom, guess what continent that is? Yeah, and the light green is Africa. And so what's happened in Africa is life expectancy gradually rose until about the 1980s. And you know what happened then. And it's been on the decline um, ever since. So my first conclusion is, if we want to effectively fight diseases of poverty, we must be advocates for economic growth. Now, I'm a medical person. What do I know about economic growth? I do know that it's extremely important because as economies grow, so does health status. So while I'm not going to develop an economic plan, I need to do everything in my power to support that kind of activity in whatever community I may be serving. Some of the projects that are especially effective projects to improve literacy as people are able to read, they're able to engage in commerce, to um, micro projects some of you are involved with as well, helping people to develop small businesses. Um, many of you are familiar with Heifer International, let's see hands, Heifer, uh, heifer for Christmas, you can, can give a calf to, uh, to some family in a developing country and uh, Heifer will, will give them the animal, will train them how to care for this animal and then how to turn this animal into money, you know, help it reproduce, um, sell it off, create economic engines that supply the, uh, the financial resources. And what Heifer has found is that as they develop economies in this way, health status of the people that they're serving also improves because we have this opportunity for economic growth. I started my career at Shanghai Charity Hospital in 1982, and at that time, most of the patients that we cared for at Shanghai Charity were suffering from tuberculosis and schistosomiasis and complications of rheumatic heart disease. Now... Uh, we were known as a heart center, basically. We were the only place in China, I believe, at that, in that era that actually took care of, uh, of, heart, of valvular heart disease, which was almost all rheumatic in origin. So China was reporting that their leading causes of death were was actually uh, cancer and stroke and coronary artery, um, but that's really not what we saw so much at Shanghai Charity. Well, this is economic growth in China. You know, China's economic status was essentially flat, until the era of Deng Xiaoping, um, 1980s, and then it's just skyrocketed ever since. And then along with that, we see this corresponding growth in uh, life expectancy throughout the nation of China. Here's a question for you. Physical health and economic development are linked. Strong economic conditions foster greater health through improvements in all of the following, except which one? All right, improvements in water and sanitation, 2, or B. Improvements in nutrition, C, improvements in medical services. D, incentives for increased fertility or more children. And then E, incentives for general education and literacy. Got an answer? Okay. Growing economies improve physical health through all of these ways except for incentives to increase fertility. As economies grow, young women have other things they can do with their life. They can go to school. They can get a job. They don't have to get married and start, start producing children uh, as, as a teenager. And so as, as economic development grows, so do their life options. We know that women who delay childbirth or have a more limited number of children have healthier families, both for themselves and, and the children. So here's my second conclusion. If we want to effectively fight the diseases of poverty, we must—we healthcare people must become advocates to end military conflict. Now, my caveat: I'm not a political scientist, but my role as a health leader demands that I do what is necessary to improve people's health, and certainly economic or uh, in interventions against war is extremely important in that regard. So, this is a slide I showed a few moments ago of, of life expectancies. Um, In in red are the nations who are either at war or recently at war. They are the same countries with the very worst health indicators on the entire planet. It's Angola, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Afghanistan, Iraq, are the nations where people are only living into their 50s. And some 25, 30% of their children are dying during the first five years of life. British Medical Journal, 2000. In many war zones, violent deaths are often only a tiny proportion of overall deaths. Populations face deterioration of their already poor health status, and excess deaths from infectious diseases usually outnumber deaths due to violence. And then they highlight what happened in Congo. Of two and a half million people killed, only about 350,000 were due to violence. Everyone else died of malnutrition and disease. I went on to work in Angola, um, southern Africa. And when you look at the continent of Africa again, Angola is the right knee of the continent. Uh, Geographically beautiful. Weather is way better than central USA. But Angola for 25 years was embroiled in a Cold War civil war uh, supplied by both the U.S. and South Africa on one side and the Soviets and the Cubans on the other side. And what was left was an entire uh, population that was essentially manless. All the men were fighting the war, and it was the women and their children who were struggling for survival. Imagine an entire country with no schools, no maintained roads, no money of any sort of value, which you could use to exchange in commerce, land mines everywhere. So no one was willing to go out and vaccinate children or be involved in any kind of agricultural work. It just wasn't worth losing a leg over. And so, what we had was a 150 bed hospital, saw about 500 people a day in the clinic, um, about 50 surgical procedures, and three docs. How do you do that? Well, you don't. You don't at all do that. You have the Angolans do that. And, uh, and we were so privileged to work with a cadre of Angolan um, paramedics and nurse practitioners. Uh, we were their consultants, we were their teachers, but they were the ones that were on the front lines actually actually doing the work. And when we were all chased out because of the war escalation, they said, fine, we know what to do. You know, come back and visit us sometime. And they've been doing it ever since, on their own. So people would often assume that working in Angola, I was taking care of gunshot wounds. And, and there were some, some of those, and there were a lot of landmines. But mostly it was the three M's. It was malaria, malnutrition, and measles. All entirely preventable. Um, And so the real health conflict in Angola of that era was the war. Because if it wasn't for a war, you'd be able to get out and vaccinate people against measles. If it wasn't for a war, you'd be able to provide chloroquine to treat their malaria. And it actually is chloroquine sensitive in Angola. If it wasn't for the war, they'd be able to get out and plant their crops and be involved in in agricultural pursuits. Um, This is the kind of scene we would see during the dry season, as people would come, come to the door and say, you know, we're just hungry we need something now I, my team was not set up for for hunger relief but but we went to our container and we opened up what we could and we would make a, a huge soup and uh, and bring it out and, and the first day we brought the soup out we were we were mobbed you know these these well-meaning desperately hungry people and and the soup spilled on the spilled on the ground and everyone went away hungry and that evening i was thinking so so what can we do next time you know i mean they're going to be there tomorrow how are we going to deliver this this food and And remember the story Jesus told of feeding the 500? He told them to sit down in groups of, of, uh, I think, 20s and 50s. Now I know why. (laughs) It's crowd control. And and that's exactly what we did. We had them get down in small groups, and then we we brought up one group at a time. And uh, no more more spilling of the food. And uh, fortunately, the rain came before too long, and we were able to get beyond that. Angola is today at peace. They're so busy trying to make money that they don't have time for conflict. And, uh, and already, even though it's only been about five years since they've been at peace, their, their life expectancy and their child mortality is all starting to improve. Some of you are involved with Samaritan's Purse. You know, one arm of, of SP is involved in conflict resolution in some of these uh, hot spots around the globe. A lot of it has to be done clandestinely. Um, but if we, as followers of Jesus, can help, nations settle conflicts, that does everything in the world good for their health as well. Uh, And then finally, if we want to effectively fight diseases of poverty, then there are some specific disease interventions that we as health leaders must know about and advocate. And what I'm going to do is touch on each of the top ten leading causes of death and what's the big news in controlling these diseases. So at the very top is pneumonia. Now, pneumonia mostly affects children, mostly affects children in Africa. Um, pneumonia is not, is not an exotic disease. Pneumonia in Africa or in Southern Asia or in South America is caused by the very same organisms that cause pneumonia in the United States. You know, it's pneumococcus, it's a small amount of H flu, it's a small amount of uh, respiratory syncytial virus. Um, there's no tropical medicine involved in managing pneumonia. Now, The the big issue seems to be that we need to improve housing and nutrition, of course, to protect these children, but what do you do when they they start getting short of breath and start coughing and getting febrile? And and there is no health care provider. You know, these kids need emergency treatment. And so the common modality has been to train village health workers or health promoters or nurse practitioners, whatever you want to call them, to be able to recognize and treat children who have symptoms of respiratory distress uh, associated with an acute illness. And uh, so here's a question about about those kind of providers, the, the nurse practitioner or the... Um, now, I'm using nurse practitioner here, not in the United States sense, but in the sense of, of what it is in most countries where a nurse is expected to diagnose and treat diseases. All right. Though the skill set differs depending on the needs of particular communities, community health workers are typically expected to perform all of the following except which one? A... They're expected to perform vaccination and well child care. B, midwifery, deliver babies. C, nutritional counseling. D, pursuit of higher medical education. And E, treatment of common diseases. We would expect community health workers to do all of those things except D. And what's the problem with pursuing higher medical education? The the big issue is that they will leave. They will leave the community. And unfortunately, it's a tension because we want people to be well-trained, but what tends to happen is they leave the community that they've been serving. They go to the city. They set out a shingle. They try to become a practitioner and make a lot of money. And so so there's a tension there between uh, how you go about selecting community health workers and doing it in such a way that they remain attached uh, and committed to their communities. Uh, the number two and the number five leading causes of death in poor countries is not <coughs> malaria, it's not HIV, it's actually coronary artery disease and cerebrovascular disease. Gee, what do we do about that? I mean, we have trouble managing those diseases even here where we have the technology. And so in a, in a low-resource community, the emphasis becomes on risk factor control. What nation on the entire planet has the highest prevalence of diabetes? It's not the United States. It's not Western Europe. It's actually Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and North Africa and Central America have the highest prevalence of diabetes in the entire world. Surprises there. So we need to find ways to treat hypertension and to treat diabetes in these low-resource communities. Gag. Where do you start? Well, basically you start with protocols. And there are are several well-developed, well-accepted protocols for that that people can use who don't have a formal medical education that says, if the pressure is this, then this is the first drug you use, and if it doesn't respond, then this is the drug that you add to that, and this is when you replace. Uh, Well-used protocols in the hands of even community health workers can effectively manage a lot of the hypertension, and even diabetes, um, similarly with uh, oral agents to control diabetes in these kind of settings. So we need to think in terms of providing continuity of care, as well as just treating episodic illnesses. If we're going to get control of the leading causes of death in these countries, number three leading cause of death: diarrheal diseases, usually associated with um, enteropathogenic E. coli and even um, typhoid and um, salmonella, tiny bit of cholera as well. But uh, I did my medical my tropical medicine training at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, and and we got really good at looking under the slide and the microscope and picking out what the organism was and, and treating that. That is not a good skill. The most important skill, you all, is helping communities develop safe drinking water sources. And we were able to do this in Angola. We had a deep well dug and a piping system uh, put in place. And very quickly, over a pattern of just a few weeks, all these diarrheal diseases went away. You know, And I forgot how to identify flagellated organisms under the microscope because it wasn't necessary anymore because we have gotten control of the source of those kind of diseases. Uh, we need to be advocates for safe drinking water. Now, in spite of the fact that we don't see so much um, people dying of, of HIV in the United States, it still is growing numerically around the world, uh, not only in Africa but in other nations as well. The um, Eastern Bloc, former Eastern Bloc countries of the Soviet Union, um, Papua New Guinea, are, are some of the areas where uh, the rate of HIV prevalence is, is growing the fastest. What works in combating HIV? Uh, To me, the most successful prevention story is what they did in Uganda in the 1980s and 90s. So Uganda had a prevalence of 20-something percent, just like most of Africa at that time. And what happened was a coalition of of government and churches and NGOs and even the president of the country got together and decided, we're going to do something to combat HIV and we're going to focus on education. And and the message that they promoted um, through public forums and through the media was ABC, you know, abstain, be faithful, use condom. And what they found is that over a 10-year period, the prevalence of HIV dropped from 21% to 6% in just six years. Men with more than one sexual partner dropped from 40% to 20%. Women with sexual partners with went from 23 to 10%. All the, all the stats across the board improved in terms of at-risk behavior and as well as uh, the overall prevalence of HIV. Now, my, I'm, I'm boarded in public health. You know, I'm all about education. And that's my career track. But I was really skeptical about this until I, until I read the, the data that, yeah, it really can work and we, we shouldn't give up on the message. If a woman is... HIV positive, and delivers a baby, what's the risk that her baby will become HIV infected? It's about 20% at the time of delivery. If she goes on and nurses that baby, then the risk doubles to about 40%. You know, there, there is nothing more sad than a child being born with a death sentence like this. A, a child who is, H, an infant who is HIV positive have a, has a life expectancy of about two years if it's not treated. If that doesn't make you cry, I don't don't know what will. And so there are these protocols that have been developed to test women who are pregnant, and if they are HIV positive, to give them an appropriate drug regimen during the last third of their pregnancy, and and also to treat their newborn. And that reduces the risk of the child getting HIV from their mom from some 20 to 40% down to as low as 2% by providing the, the medication and some alternative to breastfeeding. Uh, extremely effective in combating HIV among children. Here's a question for you. The transmission of HIV is particularly increased by all of the following except which? A, mothers who exclusively formula feed their infants. B, Readily available, ready, ready availability of simple, inexpensive diagnostic tests for HIV. C, antiretroviral therapy. D, social stigmata associated with the disease. And E, the symptomatic nature of early HIV infection. So, all of these things increase HIV, except that's not the correct answer. <laughs> Who wrote that question? Okay, all of these phenomena increase uh, the transmission of of HIV. Um, HIV infection is usually asymptomatic uh, during the the early phase. There is a syndrome of, of acute HIV, but it's very difficult to distinguish from a common cold. Tuberculosis. Now, roughly a third of the people on our planet are infected with TB. If you do a PPD on them, they'll be positive. About five or ten percent of, of those people will go on and develop clinical, usually pulmonary tuberculosis, sometime during their lifetime. Enormous problem. You know what, what's being done that's actually effective in combating tuberculosis? Well, BCG vaccination. Some of you are familiar with. You know, is commonly administered in in poorer nations to children at the time of birth. Now, BCG is effective in preventing non-pulmonary tuberculosis in children. It it helps prevent pulmonary or TB of the spine and TB of the abdomen. It doesn't really do a whole lot for pulmonary tuberculosis in children. And then by the time children get into adulthood, the effectiveness of BCG has pretty much waned. So it's not a very good uh, way of combating the disease. We need a better TB vaccine. Uh, What is... Still the big news in tuberculosis control is called DOTS, you know, Directly Observed Therapy Short Course. The the problem with TB treatment is people feel sick, they feel fatigued, they're coughing, they're short of breath. We start TB treatment, and within a few weeks they're like, gee, I'm a lot better. This is great. I don't need those drugs. So they stop taking their course of treatment, and months or years later then they re-present with drug-resistant tuberculosis. So the the idea of DOTS is that someone watches them swallow the pill and is accountable to them and marks off that they have swallowed the pill and has completed the course of therapy. Now, that sounds like sort of a no-brainer, but where people are actually being compliant with their course of therapy, you know, TB is coming under control, and where they're dropping off, that's where we get all the drug resistance and the the worst cases of the disease, BCG vaccination. All right, number eight and number ten, causes of death in poorest nations, neonatal infection and premature birth. Now, what can we do about this? You know, this is I'm breaking the infectious disease paradigm. We always talk about the big 3, there's HIV and there's tuberculosis and there's malaria. Well, yeah, they're important, but there's a whole lot of other complicated diseases out there that are significant causes of death that we need to address as well. Well, the greatest opportunity to to prevent complications is of course contraception, you know, limit your number of children, limit your risk. And then beyond that, the next opportunity is at the time of delivery because of the complications um, that occur. The the leading causes of maternal death at the time of delivery are just what they are in the United States. It's hemorrhage and it's eclampsia and it's failure to progress. You know nothing exotic about that at all. And so what we need to help impoverished communities do is provide some kind of obstetrical care. You know, they need people that are trained birth attendants, people that can recognize hemorrhage and know how to treat it, people who, who can recognize failure to progress and know how to manage that problem, providing some elementary OB care in these settings. Now, we don't have to give them an entire modern uh, obstetrical suite. Even if even some components of that will improve the overall outcome. And... Um, Many of you are involved in uh, in short-term work. Um, Stan Schaefer and Cindy Obenhaus, a nurse and neonatologist from Kansas City, are like a lot of you. They had been going to Haiti for a week or two at a time for years, going to the same community, not seeing any improvement whatsoever. And they decided, we're going to do something that has some continuity to it. We're going to stop just making trips. We're going to do something that's permanent for this community. And so they developed a coalition of churches, Haitian churches in that area, who were interested in doing something to help the pregnant moms and their newborns. And they opened a birthing center that's entirely staffed by Haitians, run by Haitians, for Haitians, providing prenatal care, providing (coughs) contraception, providing some semblance of modern obstetrical care so that when women present... and and they're bleeding out, they get treated. When they fail fail to progress, they get the appropriate referral. And de Naissance is the name of this uh, site, and it's also their website in in southern Haiti. And and what they found is that in in their community, women receiving prenatal care went from like 5% to 95% and the, the infant mortality just dropped precipitously, and women dying in childbirth was almost unheard of in this community anymore. And it was just because two people like you decided enough with the short-term stuff. We're going to help this community develop a sustainable solution to their health problem. And uh, it's a story of success that can inspire many of us. Number nine leading cause of death, malaria. Now... We have some effective drugs, of course, for malaria. The the problem is recognizing and treating appropriately when people have the symptoms. There's still a lot of work going on in the malaria vaccine. Uh, The biggest impediment to the malaria vaccine uh, may just be financial, because there are some vaccines out there. The problem is that the people who need the malaria vaccine are the very people who have absolutely no way to pay for it. So it's gotta be a freebie in both development and in uh, provision of the vaccine. There are kind-hearted people who are develop, devoting their lives to finding this and bringing it to market, and uh, I, I remain hopeful. But in the meantime, what's, what's new? What's effective against malaria? You know, it's not so much drugs. Actually, the, the chloroquine resistance that we have today is largely due to passing out chloroquine to schoolchildren during the rainy season. You know, all that did was, develop, was engender the development of chloroquine-resistant species of malaria. The big news is mosquito nets. Now, I was very skeptical when I I heard about this. Um, Are people actually gonna use them? Is it really gonna be effective? Uh, uh, In Angola, what they often do is they take the mosquito net home and they cut it up and and make wedding wedding gowns out of it. (laughs) Uh, But if they will use it correctly, then it not only protects the, the children who are tucked in underneath the mosquito net, but it also protects all the adults in the house too because you have fewer insect vectors Uh, transmitting malaria from person to person within an enclosed space. Um, We need to be advocates of mosquito nets in malaria endemic zones uh, to protect children, especially because they are the most vulnerable. It's it's children under five and it's pregnant women who are most likely to actually die of a malaria infection. Um, Here's a question. Most people who die from malaria in Africa are younger than age four. Which of the following is not a mechanism by which malaria control is being pursued today? In other words, we're trying to combat malaria in all of these ways except, all right, large scale drug chemoprophylaxis during the rainy season is A, B is detection and treatment of clinical cases of malaria, C personal measures like the use of repellents and protective clothing, D ongoing research into the development of an effective malaria vaccine. And then E, epidemic preparedness through disease surveillance. All of these are active ways that are being pursued to control malaria except for except for A. We don't pass out drugs or animal aerials during the rainy season, uh, even though that's when it's most common. But the, the downside is emergence of drug resistance. So ours is indeed a very needy world. Pick your community. It can be an impoverished community in Tennessee or it can be an impoverished community in Myanmar. Um, there are many people, kind hearted people, followers of Jesus, many of them, who want to do something on behalf of those who have, are largely forgotten by the rest of the world. Um, enormous interest among, among young people and, uh, and, and healthcare professionals, even people who are mid career or, or winding up their career, but they have questions. Okay, I have these wonderful intentions. I even feel a call of God on my life to get involved in in this kind of ministry. But I just don't know where to start. How do I pick an organization? How do I learn the skills I need for that? How can I fund this? Uh, If I'm a student, how can I get credit for school if I'm going to be engaged in this kind of of formal training? Which is why we started the Institute for International Medicine in 2003. We're, We're a training organization providing people with the skills to engage in this kind of work. Um, We do a conference in May uh, at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. We also have courses that we teach also at the U of Missouri in in the month of June in public health and international medicine. Uh, Courses that are available online as well. And we have self-paced courses that uh, that you can go through and click through over a number of hours with interactive questions that will uh, prep your skills in uh, these related fields. What we're most known for is is helping people arrange uh, mentored, supervised international experiences, uh, mostly at mission hospitals and at Christian-based clinics uh, in the world's poorest nations. Uh, If you're a student, we'll help you get credit toward your degree. If you're uh, someone who's already mid-career, you may find that you'll learn a whole lot more about this field by working with a mentor who lives on site. Um, rather than trying to piece it together for yourself, InMed doesn't do group trips. We do uh, one-on-one uh, preceptorships or uh, mentorships. We also have a one-year fellowship in international medicine that's based in uh, in Ghana and in uh, a new site in Cameroon. Healthcare is a, a difficult field, uh, regardless of your setting. You know, most of us go into this with, with very high hopes about what we want to do, you know, in the name of Jesus, in the name of humanity. We want to do something to help people. But then it gets tough. You know, you get behind on your exams. You get in debt. Uh, someone threatens to sue you. You get let go from your hospital. And, and we start to to regret this decision that we had. You know, we, we start becoming vain and, and embittered and uh, self-protecting. And there's something about serving forgotten people, people who will not be cared otherwise, that brings us back to those early sentiments that drew us into the field. Uh, It's a cure for humility, and it's a way of cultivating thankfulness and gratitude. And so that when Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did for me, bringing us back to that connection between our faith in Christ and, and our profession that drew us into this whole thing in the first place. So continue your desire to care for the world's most forgotten people. It may bring you out of your comfort zone. You might have to get involved in economic development and in resolution of conflicts and in things that combat diseases that are outside of the norm of a physician patient relationship, you know you may have to get involved in, in clean water and in mosquito nets and, and things that actually do work but may be outside of, of your normal comfort zone. You know Livingston would be proud of you one hundred and fifty years later you know, that you 're carrying on the same thing that he was doing in South Africa uh, during that era it 's a, a life well lived. We have just a few moments together, and uh, I would like to say that I have some, some brochures of, about NMED at each of the doors. Many of you have got some some comments or questions, so let me just ask. Sir? Um, on the Uganda, the, the, the report from USAID on what really happened in Uganda is a very good read. And one of the things, just to point out, the initial decrease, dramatic decrease in HIV happened before the major distribution of condoms I'm not saying that it's not an economic statement, it's just simply in the US we get taught that you can't change uh, sexual behavior through education. Mm-hmm. And that court said it was obviously that, that, that was the initial decrease was the education, efforts, not the condom distribution. Could you keep that in mind? Yeah, thank, thank you, sir, for pointing that out. So in Uganda, they found that that drop initial in prevalence of HIV was actually before they started making condoms publicly available. And so it was more the emphasis of education. Uh, than anything else. Sir? Uh, You were mentioning um, breastfeeding and HIV-positive mothers. Um, What's what's the newest, most recent data as far as um, the net benefit? Sure. When you have a a woman who is HIV-positive, then the virus is transmitted through her breast milk, putting her newborn at risk. And so you have to find some alternative for protecting the infant. Now, there are alternatives like formula. There are alternatives of finding an HIV-negative wet nurse. Um, Some advocate flash-boiling the the mother's breast milk. Uh, There's even some new protocols now where you administer antiretroviral drugs to the mom, which diminishes the risk of transmission of HIV through her breast milk. So you're going to have to track what's going on there because there are some developments. It's a controversial issue because the alternative to... Breastfeeding is often a child who goes hungry, and you know it may even be in some circumstances that it's better to nurse the child, knowing that you do put them at risk for HIV, rather than have the nutritional complications. Okay, how do we feel about about treating pre? hypertension or mild hypertension or, or prediabetes and mild hypertension or mild diabetes uh, under these settings. Obviously, there, there are costs associated with treating something that may not need to be treated. And so, essentially, what, what we know from data in the, in the United States and Western countries is that it's very important to treat mild forms of these diseases to prevent long-term complications. In a, in a resource-constrained community, you know, that may not be uh, as important. And uh, honestly, I don't know what, what the most recent data on that is. It, it, it's that tension between cost and benefit. You feeding, groups and feeding people in groups of What kind of food do you get? What kind of food did we, uh, did we feed people in Angola? Well, what we had available was, uh, was, was ground, ground corn and cabbage. Was essentially all that, all that was available in the community and that we had in our containers. And that, that's not the ideal uh, nutritional supplement for hungry people, but that's all we had. Please. Do they have any idea of why diabetes is so high in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, why is diabetes so high in Saudi Arabia? Now, what the Saudis say. Is that the problem we have in our country? Is people are overweight and don't engage in physical activity and are frequently not compliant with medical therapy? That's what they say. I will be around afterwards to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me this morning.